Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is all about the number seven. I'm Scott Phillips and with me this week... Seven days later, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, Doc? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm, mate, I'm very, very well. We do a podcast every seven days. Well, at least our regular podcast. Occasionally, mm-hmm. we do a special podcast, but even those ones are seven days apart. And over the last seven days, the ASX is up 7%. Oh, you're doing something with the seven. Do you like seven, that? Is it working for you? It's, it's brilliant. Mate. It's, there you go. It's brilliant. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some, some fruit company that had some sort of event. I don't, yeah. I think you might know some more details than I do. We'll talk about banks and the path back to dividends, the end of oil, or maybe just oil growth. We'll talk about Afterpay, because, hey, what's a podcast without a buy now, pay later reference? We will mention an astonishing rise in consumer confidence, and we will, as always, dip into our favourite part of the podcast, the Motley Fool mailbag. Mate, we've got a big one coming up. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. You know, we started without a tangent. That's always a good... Well, seven and seven and seven. That's oh, a tangent. Okay. Yeah, right. So, Should we just get on with it then? Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let's get on with it. And I... So I tweeted... If Can I say... Not, my, my tweets aren't the only reason you should join Twitter. But if you're not on Twitter, you really genuinely are missing out. Um, I mentioned that only because I say most weeks, oh, I tweeted this week um, as if people haven't seen it. I guess most people haven't. So, hey... Jonas, follow us on Twitter. I'll give you the handles in a minute. I tweeted this morning, about last night, that the ASX, so we're recording this Wednesday, actually, unusually, a day earlier than normal, um, because we've got some other commitments tomorrow. The ASX has been up 7.1% in the last seven trading days. Now, if you're new to investing, 7% doesn't sound like much, right? It's 7%, it's 5%, it's 2%. They're all kind of really small numbers. The market on average goes up about 10% a year. And we can quibble about what number over what period of time, but call it 10% on average. 70% of a full year's average gain in the last week and a bit of trading sessions. That is phenomenal. It is the largest seven-day gain since July 2009. In other words, coming out of the GFC. That's no... I mean, look, I don't, I, I don't really love the whole biggest gain since or worst fall since or you know they're, they're kind of just random numbers and they, you know everything happens eventually after whatever period of time so i don't want to make too big a deal of that but seven percent in seven days is, is reasonably noteworthy i would have thought my point on twitter was just that you know for those of the oh, those of i would say us because i don't do it but those people who follow the share market prognosticators the so-called experts that know these things that tell you what's going to happen next we're not those people by the way um, unless your unless your favourite guru forecaster crystal ball gazer told you the market was going to be up seven percent in the last seven days, it's probably about time you stop following them. Not because they should have known, but because we all know they can't possibly know, and that's the point. But if you need extra reassurance that nobody knows, the last week and a bit, mate, is certainly the story of that one. Let's do. Let's. Yeah. No more thoughts? No. You just I, want me to but, rant? I, I mean, that, that's, that's <laughs> just, you know. What do you, you make of it? What do you make of a 7% gain? I mean, it, uh, the NASDAQ also during this week, by the way, was up, I think, was it 2.5% a day? There's, I mean, we're still very much in, in the middle of volatility territory, aren't we? Yeah, like, so, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's an interesting statistic, seven, uh, 7% increase in seven days. Um, you know, it's happening after, what, like, a, almost a decade, 11 years. Um, it, so, so to me, it's well. Okay, so when the ASX is up seven percent, means the banks are up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also right? been true. The, yes. the miners are up. Yep. That doesn't excite me at all. <laughs> like, that, that, that is the most boring sort of stuff that's up. You know, I could care less about whether the banks are, you know, up or down. It yeah, just has material, almost zero impact to how I think about stuff. So, like, I mean, does it say anything about the economy or the market or the mood of investors, though? Like, at, 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 a, at a macro level, yes, you're right. You know, banks and miners are more than half our market. So, that, that, that absolutely matters. You're dead it, right. But does it say anything else? No, actually, in my mind, okay. it, it just talks about a bunch of people who have got a lot of money, which is basically super, pushing prices up for a bunch of things in some random direction. That's what it tells me. And it means, in my mind at least, nothing for the future completely. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a no indicator of the future, no indicator of, in my mind, of uh, current sentiments. But a bunch of people have got some money to invest. And they just put that into a bunch of banks, <laughs> leveraged assets, not the best assets available. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, it, you know, I don't know. Like, I mean, in my mind, 
I'm much much happier if it was down mm. yeah, yeah <laughs> then, 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 then up <laughs> yeah. uh, it, because it to me it's symptomatic yeah, of yeah. people chasing uh, the same short tail yeah, uh, yeah. trying to buy how much more of the tail can you bite I mean ultimately there'll be no tail left yeah. right so I don't know I'm not it's yeah it's you know if you told me after pay was up seven percent uh that's more interesting to me than the banks being up seven percent i mean in my mind they represent you know the after pay represents the new bank of some form mm -hmm. and the existing banks represent the old bank of some form um <laughs> and so therefore at least in my mind um it's, it's basically more of the same and mm -hmm. yeah so it, I, I don't know it yeah, it's basically the old guard doing the old things. Not very interesting. Uh, look, I, I tend to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna half agree. I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I do think it talks to, and we mention um, uh, we mention the kind of the story of of afterpay or where money's going. I think to some degree. Um, there is absolutely the what company you're invested in. But if you're investing in the market, you're investing in those companies anyway. I, I think there's absolutely a bank and mining story. I think there's, a, there's a, for mine at least, there's a market story, which is about the sentiment of investors. If you're piling into anything that makes the market go up 7% or, or any company that goes up 7% in seven days, absent meaningfully fundamental news, I, I think it says something about the sentiment of investors. Hopefully... <laughs> that, as you say, uh, we don't have to be too worried about the market going up. I, I'm, I, I like you, am more happy being optimistic when the market's pessimistic because I reckon there's, there's, you know, plenty of opportunity there. But it does say to me that, regardless of where people are putting their money, there's a lot of money going into things, and people are paying more for those things. And that, that talks to me a little bit about sentiment, a little bit about the kind of perspective ex expectations of the market. Yeah, my, my thesis with that is that people have expectations in the wrong place. It, if you have expectations in the wrong place, it's going to hurt, right? So um, in my mind, like more invest, investment dollars going to the banks is actually a bad thing. More investment dollars going into um, into mining is, mm -hmm. is reflective to some extent of um, not accepting the new, right, the okay. new normal in yeah, my mind. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah, I'm not a big fan of... Um, the same old, same old, mm -hmm. and you know, the banks, mining, putting money into banks and mining is basically investment into the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. So, um, eventually, these things change, go away, become mm -hmm. uh, not so important, become relegated to you know, uh, not you know, fifty percent of the market, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. probably like twenty percent of the market, yeah. and then ten percent of the market. So, um, th that's that's playing out slowly mm -hmm. but steadily, right? And afterpay, for example, is is a good example of. Um, Right, I mean, if afterpay goes up another threefold, mm -hmm. it'll be as big or bigger than many of our banks. Right, it's mm -hmm. already bigger than many of our smaller banks, and that, that's so. I think that's that's symptomatic reference to the mm -hmm. new, and that's symptomatic reference to, the, and this is like bouncing around in the old. Yeah, right. So yeah, I gotta say too, mate. We're gonna talk about banks in a second, but I'll, I'll bring in a little bit now. I mentioned to you guys yesterday that banks are up thirty five percent since the lows of March, which is a phenomenal recovery. And again, rightly or wrongly. It's huge. The PEs of those look. I mean, I, I've never been a big bank fan. I'm less bearish than you are, but I've never been a big fan. The PEs now for the banks are 16, 17, almost eighteen times earnings. <clears throat> Excuse me for Combank. That's a that's a lot to pay for a business that has limited. Uh, again, unless I'm absolutely dead wrong, limited growth potential at, at the profit line for the foreseeable future. Again, the the profit drivers have been falling rates. There's only so much further they can fall. House price growth, there's only so much further they can grow. Um, you know, reductions in lending standards, they're certainly not looking like they're going to be relaxed any further. It's hard to try to put a line through how a bank with a PE of 18 justifies that that PE over any extended period of time. Yeah, so, so that's basically what I'm, I'm saying maybe not in, in in that form. Like I mean, you know, people are paying 18 times earnings, 20 times earnings for these things mm. that have no growth. Um, have I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say they have bleak futures, but their future mm. is definitely definitely calcified. Yeah, calcification is on the way, right? I mean, these things are not going to disappear, but they mm -hmm. are going to be. If I had to put my money on, I would say <laughs> these are going to be substantially smaller versions of what they are today. Okay, interesting. Uh, in the future, right? And you know whether whether we like it or not, whether we want mm -hmm. to support it via monopoly or mm -hmm. quasi monopolies, uh, quasi whatever polies we have got, oligopolies, um, as oligopolies, they often say, uh, yes, whatever you know we want to yep. call it. Yep. Like I mean, uh, and we want to support it via you know by rela relaxation of lending standards, mm -hmm. or we want to support it via you know further mm. increases to um, the housing side or whatever you want to do it's basically um, 
if you push this to the extreme, you you build a house of pyramids that eventually crashes, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's like it, it's it's exactly in many ways it's like the tulip mania, right? Yeah, you right, say, right. Like, well, how much can a flower cost? <laughs> yeah. A flower can cost a lot until then it doesn't cost a lot. Right, so, right, right. Um, yeah, like I mean, you know, as, as I tell, <laughs> you know, uh, as I tell uh, people who subscribe to my services, you know, <laughs> there's a lot more to look at. Um, you know, a lot of interesting mm, things mm, to look mm. at beyond these. Uh, you know, big five or ten companies. Whether it's you know, and again, yeah. nothing wrong with this. Fundamentally, with the companies, it's just yeah. at 16, 18, 20 times earnings. I mean, you could be buying anything. Like, you know, I just, I just don't. I mean, you can make an argument that PEs are higher these days because of lower interest rates. I think that's fundamentally mathematically correct. PEs should be higher when rates are lower. Um, if you believe the the kind of basic fundamental underpinnings of the way any asset, let alone share, should be priced, so that should be fair. Um, by the way, I think it's also behind house price rises. Um, but I think you've got to have some growth from somewhere. I, again, I, I I would take the other side of your bet for just for the fun of it. I don't think the banks will be meaningfully smaller in five years' time, but I don't think they'll be meaningfully bigger either. And I think you need to be, if you're paying 18 times earnings for something, you need to have some belief that it's going to be meaningfully bigger at some point. And I think either way, whether you're right, whether I'm right, neither of us are, are out there banging the drum for strong profit growth on banks, are we? Yeah, look, I think they're going to be meaningfully smaller uh, from here on. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, my, I wouldn't short them because mm. I don't short. But I mean, yeah, like there's, I, I personally don't see any reason for them to be um, maintain their size. Like, yeah, I, I yeah. would think that the neo banks and uh, new business models, which is you know, Afterpay, is a great example of mm, what a new mm, business model can do. Mm. Um, these things will chip away and take share mm. um, from these guys. And you know, again, I'm, I'm, you know, if uh, yeah, mm, <laughs> I, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, mm, like you know, eighteen times earnings for. Uh, Combank, or mm-hmm. you can get mm-hmm. like uh, you know JP Morgan Chase for thirteen point seven times earnings. They have two trillion dollars in deposits. Right? Of <laughs> two trillion in deposits. So I I, I don't know why investors mm. would pay the kind of multiples they're paying. They shouldn't, but they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and as we know that if the multiples go up, eventually it hurts. Yeah, exactly. um, What's well, got it right? They, yeah, everything everything's got its own gravity. Let let me let me uh, change the agenda for the for the chat this morning and and go straight to the dividends. While we're on the banks, mate, because it makes sense to go away and come back to it. Um, BOQ Bank of Queensland restoring to some degree its dividend today. CBA saying earlier this week that it has. It is trying to get back to its to its old policy of seventy to eighty percent net profit being paid out as dividends. I have to believe that's to some degree behind the bank share price recoveries of the last six months. The sense that maybe bad debts aren't as bad as we thought. Maybe dividends are coming back. You know, maybe you go back to where we were. I think I, I could almost imagine what you're going to say, but I, I'll, I'll say it first. And you can either agree or, or add to it. Um, you know, there is some sense of. I think in Australia, the, the assumption, incorrect though it may be, is that one of my favourite investing acronyms, TINA, there is no alternative. And right now, I think it's still that sense of investors who used to own the banks and who maybe either didn't own them or weren't adding to them while the worst of the the, the crisis was kind of com- coming through, have finally kind of looked at it and gone, oh, thank goodness we can go back to the banks again. That sense of they were just waiting for the right time to go back rather than genuinely reassessing how likely it was, how probable, how, how appropriate it is. The, the the psyche among many, many investors, which is just, we want to own the banks, we need to own the banks, we want the income, we trust the banks, it's made us a lot of money. Okay, we can't do it right now, but as soon as the coast is clear, we're going to pile back in there. And the dividends, I think, is the last piece of that particular psychological jigsaw for investors to actually jump back in. Yeah, like so, I don't disagree with. Uh, I think so. Yeah, what what the banks are doing is basically what I call shareholder management, right? So they're basically <laughs> yeah. doing, share, which is the absolutely abysmal thing to do. Uh, shareholder management. So instead of trying to grow your business, make make it bigger, better, different, <laughs> you know, yep. fit into the new age, you're basically busy. Uh, oh, if I you know jack back up my dividends, oh, so what if I am taking more risk? That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll get the investment. So this is the peculiar, really like. Like this is the sort of mindset I would say mm-hmm. generally describes, uh, you know, calcified businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Businesses that are solely focused on one thing, which is how can I manage my share price, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's what's happening. And for investors, I'll just say this, right? I mean, you know, why own the banks? You could have owned, you know, I'll just use again Afterpay as an example. Mm-hmm. I mean, could have owned Afterpay as up five x or ten x or whatever, right? I mean, the banks are up thirty five percent. Afterpay is up you know probably 300 percent uh from the marshall so like i mean you know i think there's a there 
I think there are a couple of things. Uh, banks are regarded as too sacred, uh, you know, too big to fail. Mm, mm, mm. None of those things are actually true, right. right? Nothing is too big to fail. I right. mean, everything can fail. Um, you don't need dividends to live. You know, you can enjoy your cap gains, uh, your capital gains mm. to. Um, to live and you know just sell off some shares right I mean why do you need that frank dividend you can, when you can yeah again it's really individuals making poor choices and when I say individuals I'm not blaming retail investors it's the entire industry um, where you know the, the superannuation industry if you're putting money mm. behind these things I mean it's you know indirectly well your yeah. money is basically going into assets that really are not the future uh, mm. in any sense. So, I, I don't know, I, I feel a little, um, um, the investor psychology here is not very useful, mm. right? And, and and maybe it's for those people who want to take a contrarian view. It's an opportunity if you're you know, willing to be patient, willing to be tolerant of volatility. You, the potential, there's, a, there's potentially a lot of money to be made here by looking elsewhere, looking away uh, from the banks and miners. Mm. I don't necessarily disagree with that either, mate. I think there's, uh, I, I'm again, I, I'm less... Extreme than you on the on the dividend piece. I think there's there's a reason and a role for fully frank dividends in many people's portfolios. I do worry that again, as you made the point, that because the banks seem to be the look. I, the, the funny thing about delusions is when they're shared by enough people, they can go on for a very long time, right? To the extent we, to everyone, that's, banks are up thirty five percent, not because they've necessarily become such different businesses over the past six months, but because sentiment has meant that people are buying more bank shares because they bought more bank shares, and that's that's you know in, a, in its own sense what's driven the share price higher. The question, of course, as with any company, is is the future attractive enough to justify that particular share price. I think that's the, the question we're both, oh, well, that's the answer we're both aligned on, which is just be a little bit careful here, people, because just because share prices are up, just because everyone's buying the bank shares and some people will point to that and say, see, I told you, and that can be true until it's not. And, and, and fundamentals will always, always out. It can take a long time on the up and the downside, but eventually you've got to pay the piper and that's, um, that's the challenge. Mate, speaking of paying, paying the piper, speaking of great businesses, there's a, a little fruit company that I know you're slightly fond of. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, apparently it's a fruit company that makes mobile phones, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some other stuff, bits and pieces, um, potty things and watchy things. Um, they had their most recent event. I don't know. Does it have a name? Oh, it's called Welcome Speed. High Welcome, speed, high, high, oh, high, comma speed. Hey, hey, those punsters at Apple. <laughs> uh, speaking of high speed, then what? I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you off the leash. The Apple event this morning. What uh, what do we what do we see? What do we hear? What do you make of Apple's new announcements? Um, so, like you know, nothing, nothing like uh, extraordinarily new. Nothing uh, you know uh, groundbreaking, um, other than just the fact that they have five G phones, which is I think important. So mm-hmm. they have they have five G. You know, all their entire new phone line now has uh, or five G chips. They support all the various. Um, various bands that are, exist, you know, so there's, you know, extreme high speed at, you know, very short range and right, right. All, all sorts of different bands in different countries. So the chips are now going to support that. Um, other than that, you know, it was a pretty uh, low-key event. I mean, they announced mm-hmm. many, many speakers, which basically competes with, the, you know, the small speakers, the Google and the Amazon okay. sell. Yep. Um, and they announced a few other things, you know, some improvements on the cameras, some improvements on videos, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of pro-like tools. Okay. Um yeah, so the, what stood out to me really is that this was, you know, more of the same from Apple. Uh, the technology is sort of in a, um, a transient state, We're waiting for certain things to mature before we can sort of go to the next right. level of yep, technology. Yep, yep. Until then, Apple is basically saying, well, I'm going to just take some market share. So the around the mm-hmm, range of phones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in US dollars, pricing goes from like 399 or something all the way to like 999, right? So they've got basically a type of phone, a new phone, mm. with almost all capabilities, except with, you mm-hmm. know, it ch- changes to form factor, size, and things like that, um, to address a larger um, um, market. So Apple's market share is pretty small, roughly like 12% or something like that. So they're probably gaining, looking to increase market share by expanding coverage in terms of the different types of devices they're mm. offering. And, you know, overall, I thought it was a you know good uh, good little uh, little strategy I think from on on their part now, again as I said nothing 
that stood out as whoa, this is you know super innovative because mm, you know five G mm. phones are coming was well yeah. well, well known. Yeah, it wasn't um, surprised, yeah. And frankly, as I was telling you, like you know, if you took out the five G part, there was yeah. nothing really new. Um, does that yeah. surprise you? The sense that there is nothing new. Are, are we are we getting close to peak phone in the sense that there's only so much more you can do with a bit of glass and metal and some chips inside it? I mean, are we? Is this? I don't. It's not about Apple at all, but from all the phone makers, the the iterative. Evolution, the gap, the jumps have been smaller, or seem to have been smaller and smaller each time. Are we, are we kind of getting to the point where it's like, we're kind of done here, guys? Like, we'll incrementally improve this stuff, but no matter which phone maker you are, no matter which brand you are, we're kind of at some sort of destination point. Yeah, like, so I think that's roughly true. Like, you know, we are probably, which is what I said, right? I mean, we are sort of at a transition point where, you know, phones are as powerful or more powerful than mm, many computers. Mm. Um, that's incredible, isn't it? You know, <laughs> that's like really cool. We shouldn't, we shouldn't actually gloss over that. That is one of the coolest parts of the last 10, 12 years is literally the world in your pocket. Yeah, the world in your pocket. I mean, you said like when I said a high level, there's nothing new, right? I mean, but at the you know, if you look at the A14 chip that they put in, like it's got a five nanometer. It's basically designed to find. It's the first chip hmm. on a five nanometer design. Okay, help me out. That, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to break it down for the lot. So ba- like basically, if it's it's saying that each transistor yep. is on that five nanometer scale, which means you can you're probably fitting in like you know. F- Five billion transistors on one chip. Right? <laughs> oh, no way. This is really hard. Angel on the and, head of the pin stuff. And right now, if you look at what Intel is doing in terms of chips, for mm, example, mm. Um, they are no longer following this sort of Moore's curve where the number of transistors you know doubles every eighteen months. Right. Mm. That was this. That was a only company probably still doing that is Apple. Right. right? Okay. So Apple is a better chip maker today. Right. Than all the other chip makers. Right. right? Um, so I, 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 so there's a lot of things happening underneath the the shell, mm-hmm. but the shell is not changing, and the functionality of the shell shell is you know basically you know the changes are very delta. Yeah, okay. And and tell me what it basically means is that you know we are waiting for certain other technologies to mature. So the new thing, this phone has a lidar sensor. Okay. Right, uh, which allows you a sense of space, and they had a very cool demo there of um, I think Medtronic, um, which you know looks at office building spaces and then sets mm. it up for like you know medical functionality, mm-hmm. and instead of, you know, they do things using cardboard. Mm-hmm. But now they can actually use a smartphone and virtually put things in different places. Oh, and it's cool. all being enabled by this LiDAR uh, and augmented reality. So the, I think what, what we're waiting for is technology to mature, mm. uh, software stacks to mature for some other thing to come. What that other thing is, we don't know. But as, you know, I, I think okay. what we see right now is that we are going to a very wearable type of look. So we're going to be, you know, the phone is going to still be the center of our communication, but we're going to have a lot of other things that are going to, you know, um, you know, the Internet of Things is going to finally get realized. But I think right. we are waiting for sort of the right moment. And okay. in in the meantime, Apple is doing what it it, it really should, which is expand market share, build services, build mm. APIs, mm. build you know software tools. Um, you know, expand services and things like that. So that's, you know, so that's that. That's really what's going on. So we're not so much at a final destination as at some sort of staging point where we're consolidating and waiting for the next lot of stuff to be possible. Is that is that a well, better we, way to put we, it? We're probably like we're very mature. Uh, in a smartphone world, like I mean, you'll have new applications and things like that. But you know, like I mean, your phone has a certain screen. There's, there's only <laughs> yeah. your your phone yeah, can right. go from four inches to <laughs> yeah. nine inches. At that point, it's a tablet. Uh, right? At that point, it becomes a tablet, <laughs> and your phone can have you know camera yeah. functionality that's yeah. like yeah. Uh, you know a DSLR, yeah. which it already does. Yeah. Your phone can take pictures at <laughs> night, and your phone can act like a, a camera system that professional people can use for shooting movies. That's right, already right, happening. Right. Um, you can play games on your phone. Yeah, you, yeah. Your phone can do... So all those things, you know, you can do incrementally better, mm. but it, it it is really at a point where you would expect something else to come. So like, you know, the Apple Watch is a great example of mm. that something else, right. which is realizing health functionality, um, you know, various... So the NHS, for example, is putting health data into the Apple phone, right. um, you know, so it, it becomes a record for health. Um, so all of those things, you know, where the record for health moves to sort of the smartphone and uh, the Apple Watch becomes the... Mm. Um, 
uh, sort of the default gateway for a lot of diagnostic things, right? So those are things that are happening, but you know, but there may be some other missing pieces mm-hmm. um, in in the process. So you know, as I said, like I mean, from an, uh, from an operations point of view, they're doing all the right things, you know, giving a range of choices for customers so that they can upgrade. You know, uh, this is potentially the largest upgrade cycle that we will see in probably last among the last three years. So, you know, so tell, so me, tell me what that is. You made the comment before we started chatting. I didn't ask you at the time because I wanted to hold the question for now. Um, this is, by your own words, a, a reasonably small set of evolutions. Yet you're talking about the biggest upgrade cycle. I would have thought that would be more likely to happen when the big kind of, you know, uh, big stuff off kind of, you know, big revolutions come out. Oh, it's got this great new thing. We need our new phone for that. Does anyone need to buy a new anything phone in this generation of mobiles? Yeah, so here's, here's the funny thing, right? So, like, you know, the, the, so we'll go back to your banks example, right? Mm. People pile back into banks because people know banks, right? Right? People don't buy pile into uh, Afterpay because they don't know what Afterpay is, right? <laughs> right. New stuff <laughs> yeah. moves slowly, yeah, yeah, right? But so a clever company like Apple, mm. what it does is it keeps the old thing going, yeah. offering a lot of choices right. while building the stepping stones for the new, okay. right? So, um, you know, you you have the iPhone, 200 million iPhones are sold, r- roughly 200, 250 million iPhones are sold every year. Right. But not everybody has an Apple Watch. Right. Right? And Apple Watch is probably growing at a phenomenal pace. That's because that's new. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have maybe functionalities. People are, you know, not really sure. Do we need it? And things like that. Right. The same thing is going to happen to whatever this new... So, I mean, in my mind, App, Apple Watch is already more successful than the Apple phone given the point in time where it is. Yeah, okay. It's already more successful. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's just the, the number Apple, of devices sold at its at oh, just devices sold, you know, growth, uh, you know, what it, it can do right. relative, you know, because technology has improved over time, right? Right. It is just, you know, unlike, you know, Apple has a problem of what I call, you know, having something so successful that mm. everything else that is so successful doesn't look as successful, right? right. Because, you know, like, I mean, if you didn't have the iPhone mm. success mm-hmm. in terms of, then, then the Apple Watch success would look like, whoa, this is like, you know, like, I mean. Right. If you're a small independent hardware well, like, I mean, maker and you really yeah, like Apple I mean, Watch should be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, if you're a Fitbit and you could do half or one quarter of, um Apple Watch, yeah. you'd be like, you know, jumping up and down. It'll be yeah, like, right. you know, Apple Watch by itself would probably be like bigger than Combank right. <laughs> as, as, a, as a business, right? And it probably is. So, so I think that's the thing, right? So, um, and, and yet I'm saying it's going to be the biggest upgrade cycle largely because the, um, there's a lot of people with three plus years old phones mm-hmm. who will now have a lot of, com- so if you, if you go back three years and then you compare the three-year-old phone mm. with today's phone, yeah. This is leaps and bounds. Sure, sure. You know, so what we are thinking is, oh, it's not that much better than last year. That yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is, on average, well, three-year-old phone is blah. This phone is this. It can do all these cool things. Yeah, right. Plus, gives me 5G. Yeah. It's enough reason. And I have a range of choices. Yeah. Enough reason. So I think it's going to be like financially super rewarding. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as I, as I keep saying, Tim Cook is a superb operator mm-hmm. um, and he knows exactly what he's doing. So I think this is going to be great for financial results. Like, Apple is going to basically hit it out of the park. Um, but it's going to make all those commentators who are looking for something great mm-hmm. unhappy mm-hmm. because it's it's not, you know, so this is very, it's a very deliberate operation, right? You upgrade every year. You day know every, you know, only few people buy the stuff yeah. every year, yeah. right? But if you go back three years, yeah. whoa, like, I mean, the, all the capabilities that are there in today's phone did not exist mm. three years ago. So mm. I think that's, that's the, yeah. So that's so not so much this phone particularly that spurs the cycle, but there's just enough in this phone relative to the phones people are replacing to make it worth doing. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. okay that's enough. That's enough free advertising for Apple. Let's uh, let's <laughs> let's move on, um, mate. The the thank you for the summary, by the way. The uh, I'll get you to the Google update next week. You can you can whack lyrical about Google's great things. There's only one person who has a Google phone in all of Australia, <laughs> right? That's probably you. So, <laughs> mate, uh, g- genius is often un- unappreciated in its own generation. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I mean, it's, like, I mean, it's still going to be interesting because, like, I mean, it's, you know, it's like me talking to you. <laughs> And you already know about whatever that phone is. So it doesn't really matter. No one else cares. Okay, yeah, fair so enough. it doesn't really matter. Fair enough. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I was interested today in a couple of headlines I saw around solar and around oil. Now, the International Energy Agency 
I have to say, they've been a little bit hit and miss with their forecasts, so I'm going to put an asterisk on this. But in any case, they still said their latest forecasts are saying the end of global oil demand growth, we'll break that down in a second, within a decade, and more subdued outlook for gas as renewables power forward. Now, we've t- peak oil has been around since 1970, right? There were people saying peak oil is coming because it's going to be too expensive to get out of the ground. You won't be able to find any more of it. We'll run out of oil. This is, this is exactly the reverse. This is peak oil, but from a demand perspective, the International Energy Agency basically, not that oil will be over, but the end of oil demand growth. In other words, we still use more oil this year than we used last year and the year before, and that growth year on year has been impressive. They're basically saying that within a decade, people will actually use less oil than the previous year. Now, that's not a big deal until you realize that it really is because a whole lot of companies' business models, the oil price itself relies on an imbalance between demand and supply and an imbalance where as long as demand outstrips supply, you can continue to produce more and more oil and you can find more complex places, more difficult places, more expensive places to find it, right? So the first oil you could you know you could walk you could walk across the US Midwest and you know hammer hammer a nail into the ground and, and find oil, find oil right and that, that was super cheap to get in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East still super cheap to get but each sequential well is harder to find more expensive to find more expensive to drill just because we're having to look in different places this turns the entire industry potentially I don't want to I don't getting a hyperbole, but I also don't want to understate this. This is big, right? If this happens, it turns the entire energy sector on its head. Yeah, so uh, I, I think, yeah, well, okay, for, it's, it's like, you know, it's their forecast. It's like yes. us yeah. making, <laughs> <was that>? um, <laughs> uh, us making, so uh, yeah, I agree with yeah, you. It's yeah, a forecast. Yeah. It's like us telling you the market is going to do exactly this next yeah, yeah, year or the yeah. day, year after. Um, we can't, I mean, similarly, they can't as well. Yeah. Oh, but, I mean, it looks like it's happening largely mm-hmm. because I mean, so the sustainable transport is the big is a big component of that, right? right if right. if you t- if you if sustainable transport is happening via you know batteries and and things and, and mm-hmm. I I think okay so fundamentally I think a couple of things are um, it, it are widely misunderstood, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you know in nineteen zero three. Uh, when 1903, I might be getting my dates wrong by here by a couple of years or maybe a few years, but in 1903 when the New York parade happened, mm-hmm. um, most of the things there were horse carriages. Right. Right. Wow, there you go. Right. By 1917, yeah. most of the horse carriages were gone. Isn't that fascinating? Right. Yeah. This happened in the 1900s. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, it wouldn't surprise me that in the next 10 years, mm. there are no internal combustion engine vehicles mm-hmm. being made Listen anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And if the cost of the of the battery-powered vehicles mm-hmm. is substantially lower, mm-hmm. and the and the, the other thing is that the battery-powered vehicles are going to have substantially high new technology, right. it actually may be the case that people basically scrap the existing ice-powered mm. stuff, mm. right? And that could actually accelerate. So, I mean, it is sometimes hard to see how this might happen, but, you know, there is, you know, mm. in maybe in 20 years' mm. time, you don't have any gas-powered vehicles on the planet, mm. right? Now, part of part of the energy debate has always been that um, the big developing countries have always said, like, you know, well, you Western countries have polluted and gotten ahead. Now we need to pollute to get ahead. Mm. But there is a realization in at least some parts that, like, for China is a big one, where China has got big impetus mm. on um, not going the polluted way to grow vehicle sales and things like that. So they've mm-hmm. got big incentives for uh, sustainable energy. So, so that's one angle, with, which I think is starting to, um, uh, you know, become very relevant. And then uh, I think then the, for the gas part, like gas, gas is like so gas. I have a h- harder time seeing. So gas is used domestically. Gas is used mm-hmm. um, for um, gas, uh, gas uh, fired plants. Mm-hmm. I don't have a good view of what's what is likely. The gas replacement. I mean, you could you, you know people would still use it for cooking, and you would still use it for some pickle plants and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I don't have a good view on what the situation with with just gas 
per se. But but I mean, use like diesel and petrol. I think that use decreasing seems seems almost seems like obvious at this point. So mm-hmm. I think that's and I think that's the key for me is you know as you as you rightly say. It is a forecast. Um, they also they've had some terrible forecasts over the years. I've been wrong in, in a whole lot of different directions. And of course, the usual suspects came out and criticised this report. The the pro renewables guys said, "Oh, you're being too too you know conservative," and the and the fossil fuel guys, "Oh, you're being too aggressive." And maybe maybe that by definition means if you've got people arguing at both sides, you're probably roughly right in the middle somewhere. Um, if both groups are criticising you for being too too far in the other direction, but it is. A reminder for investors, and I think you know we talk about old industries. I got to say, I'd rather own banks than oil companies right now. Um, you know, it, just in terms of not that I'm again back, say I don't own any banks. I probably wouldn't buy any banks, but relatively speaking, the very real chance that for for um, for coal companies in particular, there are stranded assets because the world moves on. For oil companies, that they're either current or new uh, uh, wells simply become uneconomic to either continue to produce or probably more likely new ones are simply harder to find. You know, we've talked about, you know, the, the, the potential. Who's going to go and drill a new oil well if these forecasts come to fruition in the next, I don't know, three, five years? Who's going to drill a well with a 15-year life? Who's going to go and do those things? And this is where companies, we've seen this in electricity already in Australia with coal-fired power plants. You know, companies are simply not making those 20-year investments because they don't have they don't have reasonable certainty in either the government or the, the the political scenario. But I think as importantly, frankly, the sheer cost scenario of, you know, is it cost-effective to set up a new coal-fired power plant? Question mark. Is it really going to be economical to go and drill a new oil well? And I think that if you're an investor, you really need to, you don't have to be the, the you know the, the furthest out there futurist of the world. You don't have to take extreme views, but it is reasonable to say, hey, if some of these scenarios do come to pass, and you don't even have to be a, a climate change believer. I don't know how you can't be. I think the science is pretty clear, but um, I'll, I'll stop editorialising at that point. But you know, even, even even if it was completely fanciful, but yet governments and consumers and the economics the industry were still going to work against you. You don't, you know, being right is one thing, but simply reading the market, understanding where things are going, or where investors are going, where business is going, it's a really, really important part of long-term investing. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with that. I mean, again, like it's it's re- generally a bad idea to hold on to. So the couple of like from an investment point of view, right? It's generally a bad idea to um, to buy um, into a business that is in mm. sort of a secular decline. Right, or a business that has a strong potential being overrun by serious, serious uh, or by innovation, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like you know, I think the the oil industry is in that it's a commodity industry too, which makes mm-hmm. it very, very difficult. Um, and it has larger implications. Has impl- it has economic implications, right? So, mm-hmm. like you know, for less diversified economies which depend a lot on that oil income, mm-hmm. that's a big problem. Yeah, yeah, right. Huge. I mean, you know, they should be really thinking about. What's coming next, yeah. right? How are they going to actually yeah. uh, make a living, mm. right? So I think that's that's I think the bigger uh, there are some big big uh, you know economic realities out of it. So huge, yeah. Mate, let's um, let's move on from from the past to the future. You mentioned Afterpay earlier, mm-hmm. and it's worth mentioning that this morning again we're recording this on Wednesday, the fourteenth of October. This morning, Afterpay was given a clean bill of health from the anti money laundering mob Oztrack. Australian transaction something something can't remember now. Uh, anyway, Austrac the mob who the government mob who are, who are uh, obliged and, and uh, required to keep track of where money's going and make sure banks and financial institutions are doing the right thing. This is the same group, by the way, that scored more than a billion dollars out of Westpac for their breaches. So this is a this is a an organisation a regulatory body with meaningful teeth and pretty powerful group, particularly in the current environment. They've said to us, "Off to pay. Nope, you guys are good. Keep doing what you're doing. No problems here." That's got to be something of a tick in the box for Afterpay who have been fighting the, I won't say good fight because I have my own views on this one. I think you actually agree with me on this one. I think they should actually embrace regulation rather than fighting it. But in any case, thus far, they can say, hey, we did everything we said we were going to do. We're doing it properly. The regulator says we're okay. Another tick in the box, if you like, another another risk removed from Afterpay's growth story. 
Yeah, like so. Like I think what is interesting here is, um, like you know, when they're you know money laundering and all these things. I mean, it's hard to money launder through you know small transaction payments that that you know is being facilitated. I mean, you can. Everything is possible, but you know, it's mm. not. You know, it, it's easier to do when you have accounts have hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> than accounts which are dealing with, uh, right, uh, right. you know, effectively yeah, debt of right. you know a few hundred dollars. Right? That's right. So I think that's that. It, it is. Uh, it's it's a good win for them. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, again, <laughs> I I really think that you know they are an example, and and the others like you know Zip and others. And again, mm. like there's an entire sector we can have views on. You know whether or not. I mean, I I think you know how how we should view the regulation, but I think it is symptomatic of innovation and of innovative ways of providing finance, for example, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's great, and 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 the, and it's good to know that they're doing all the right things. So mm-hmm. that is good for that finance sector and in the in, in innovation there. So it's, you know, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's good. Like I, you know, I've said before, and I'll, I'll say again. I, I think the Afterpay should be regulated uh, in accordance with other credit providers, and I think it would make sense for them and others. Frankly, um, I think at some point they will come to this view. Is my speculation because once you're big enough. Regulation becomes your friend to actually keep out the little guys who would otherwise come and steal your crown given the choice. And Afterpay right now is a disruptor. At some point, they become the incumbent. And once you're the incumbent, you you want to uh, you're more than happy to help government put in rules that might uh, might just you know make life a little bit tougher for your for your competitors. Particularly something like this, where it's a scale story. If you can scale the sort of costs and the sort of processes required for a know your customer type scenario, that's what they call it in, in finance land. Know your customer in KYC, um, which which really is supposed to make sure that. Everyone knows who's doing what, where risks are being taken, whether they can pay back the debt. And in Austrac's case, whether the money's going overseas or staying here. So I think it makes some sense. I think they should. I think it would make them much more credible. Uh, not even as an investment uh, uh, candidate, although that would actually help, by the way, but also just as a, as a player in the financial markets. Um, and, and to whatever degree, they can become the incumbents without losing that kind of innovative drive that, you know, we don't, you, you don't as a shareholder, want them to become calcified, to use your word from earlier, Doc. But if they can, if they can find that, that, you know, position for themselves, I think that would make a whole a whole lot more sense maybe than um, than trying to trying to continually buck against it. But again, after doing completely fine without my advice, mate. So I don't I don't imagine they're listening to this podcast. If they are, I don't reckon they're taking their uh, strategic advice from me. So I'll I'll probably let them do their own thing. Uh, but I certainly, if I was them, would be finding a way to to make your peace with that and, and maybe even embracing it so that you can say to your competitors, "Hey, we're doing this. You guys should be too." Well, Afterpay shirts are happy and up there, you know, but close to getting to like a $100 mark. How good is that? <laughs> there you go. Good Better news than for owning the bank bank shares. Good news for shareholders. All right, mate, let's uh, let's go to the mailbag, shall we? We'll finish off with a couple of questions. We've got a bit of time this morning, so we'll, we'll come to a couple of questions from our listeners. Um, I'm going to check in on Mark. Now, Mark had a, a French girlfriend, I think, from memory. Um, apologies, Mark, if it's your wife. I can't remember exactly, but let, let's, say, let's say French partner. Uh, and and I did suggest that that Mark's partner was Marjorie, as in Marjorie, but but spelt with uh, pronounced in the French way with a, with a silent J or at least a kind of a a Y sounding J. I'm sorry, I probably offended every French listener by describing it that way. Uh, Mark replies, "Thanks so much, Scott, for the correct pronunciation of Marjorie in French. She loved it." So I'm basically saying this because I just make myself feel good, and you know, I, I screw up I screw up names that regularly. I've got to, I've got to take my wins when I can get them to prove I'm not a complete dump numpty. Um, she was very happy and laughed a lot. Thanks too for the discussion on my question. Brilliant, says Mark. Mark, thank you, mate. You're very you're very welcome, and thank you for the feedback. I am beyond pleased that I managed to get one right finally. So uh, so thank you, mate, for that. All right, a question from Josh Doc. This is more. This is not about me or about me giving myself a rap. This is about a question from Josh, and it's a topic we don't cover all that frequently. <laughs> so Doc says. Uh, Doc says. Josh says. Hi Scott. Just a question for the mailbag. Would love to hear your and Doc's thoughts on retail trusts, centre group, and vicinity centres. Would they be a good buy considering the discount of these businesses and a projected timeline for recovery? That would be great. And he says in capital letters, full on lads with a thumbs up and a big green tick. Josh, thank you for the question, mate. It's a good one. We don't speak about retail trusts all that frequently. Um, I don't, I was going to ask you a question to try and direct the conversation. I'm going to, I'm just going to say, what do you reckon? Well, well I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't look at retail trusts. Um, Ed Vesley, who runs our dividend investor service, mm. I mean, he looks at um, these sort of things. I don't really look, pay attention. I mean, I have mm. some cursory views. So, I mean, 
I think malls in the current format are a bit challenged, but that doesn't mean malls go away. I think malls <laughs> have a role in society in terms of ent- entertainment as a meeting mm-hmm. hub and things like that. Um, they're currently in this sort of really painful position where nobody wants to pay them rent <laughs> and government says yeah. don't pay them rent while all these companies make billions of dollars of profit. So they're, they're I think, it's weird, uh, eh? they're in this hard sport and I sympathize with their... Um, hard sport. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they have real assets that they have put together that <laughs> that they have full uh, freedom <laughs> to not pay rent on. Uh, uh, others have full freedom to not pay rent on that. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't like to own an asset that uh, you know where it was a government sanctioned don't don't pay rent. It's fine uh, type of sin- scenario. So I feel their pain, but I don't have a way to value them, and I don't know how the future looks enough. Um, or I don't know the future looks for anything, but I don't. I just don't have a good sense of, you know, what their position is in terms of, you know, how much um, they can, mm. you know, drive in terms of rent going forward, uh, what sort of growth they can expect, um, you know, what else can they do to, you know, drive funds. I mean, um, the, the things like, you know, theaters and, and so on, movies are also being, you know, so like as Andrew Leggett, our colleague was saying, Disney is going mm. digital for distribution. I mean, if, if most movies go um, direct to consumer for distribution, that has impact on other things that are associated with malls, such as you know movie halls and things like that, right? So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Like I mean, they're, they're again in an industry which is undergoing change. I don't, I don't have a good view of valuation there, though. Yeah, I think it's a good one. I so I got two issues with. So let, let me start with the positives, mate. Just for just because I like to. Um, I think retail trust can be interesting for people who are looking for stable income producing shares um, if that's kind of what you want. The problem I have with them is I don't think the income is necessarily going to be as great as you expect. The shares are probably going to lose to the market and the dividends aren't franked. <laughs> so other than that, you're probably okay. Um, so those are reasonable ones, right? I think So let's go through those. Um, if you own a retail trust, it's effectively owning a collection of businesses. Now, if you own a collection of office buildings, uh, or in this case, shops, um, you're going to charge your rent, and that rent's probably I don't know five seven percent, doc, if I'm generous, of the building's value. Because if it's any less than that, people go elsewhere. I'm sorry, if it's any more than that, people go elsewhere. So you know that that you, your market rent is probably I don't know five or six percent, I suppose, of the value of the asset, right? So that, let's assume that's true. If you're buying that. That those shares for the book value, in other words, the value of the assets, then all you're getting is that six or seven percent return, and that's that's fine, it's lovely. But it's not probably you know, probably not going to beat the market over the long term, and it's certainly not going to beat the market over the long term if the market continues to deliver the sort of ten-ish percent returns it has in the past. So if you think about that, and you say, well, hang on, why would I do that? Now, to so the question, maybe you get them when they're super cheap, and maybe you get some sort of just recovery gain, um, and that's true uh, potentially. Although, as I said before, and we talked about the banks earlier in this podcast, mate, the you know the banks are up thirty five percent, which is wonderful. Except the ASX is up a little bit more than that, and you've made the point yesterday. Nasdaq's up even more than that, and so if you kind of look at that and say, "Well, see, I was right; the, the shares are up," it's like, "Yeah, well, the market was up more." So even in a, in a depressed kind of share price state, you have to believe they can beat the market again. Otherwise, just buy a market ETF and go fishing, as I said many, many times. So. It's a tough one for me to look at those companies and think they are likely to be market beaters. And if they're not, I'd rather buy the market because then I get the market return. <laughs> if, I can, if you can't beat them, join them, as they say. And quite literally, with a super cheap ETF, you can do exactly that. And of course, you can buy stocks that beat the market and do even better again. So if if your, if your retail trust is the third of three <laughs> ideas in, in that order, you know, in terms of preference or, or, or likely upside, um, it's just really hard to find a rationale for it. You also make the point, Doc, I think it's a really good one about the contracts and the, the rent they can charge. The, the rules are being rewritten right now, even if they're not literally legally being written. We've seen a couple of big retailers basically either pull out closed stores or renegotiate rents. And so if your contracted rent isn't worth the paper it's written on because they can be renegotiated at a moment, moment's notice, I just, I, I don't know, I, I can't think of, maybe if I'm centre group, and are in the Westfield centres. They're probably the they're probably the best in the bunch, generally speaking. They're probably going to have the premier premier retailers. They're probably going to have the best foot traffic. They're probably going to have the highest average rents. If you made me buy one, I'd buy centre. Um, I might look at the suburban ones, the shopping centres, Australasia, for example. I'd have a Woolies, a Kmart, and a, and a couple of cafes because again, they're local kind of convenience retail. And I guess you've always got customers there. 
the ones I desperately would hate to own are probably vicinity to the question, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Um, because they're kind of that mid-tier, right? They're not local and convenient. They're not super premium and destinations. They're kind of stuck somewhere in between. And as we go more online, as as retailers can negotiate a bit harder, I don't know. I just wouldn't – I don't think I want to own vicinity. I don't think I want to own those mid-tier retail trusts. Any more on that, mate? Oh, no. I have nothing to add. Beautiful. Let's go to a question from Jordan. Now, Jordan talks about a previous podcast we did. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back and listen to our previous podcast. We did a, a whole episode on investor mistakes and how to overcome them. And Jordan asks the, uh, I think, the the appropriate follow-up question. He says, hi, Scott. I'm currently listening to the Investor Mistakes podcast episode and wanted to ask that if you don't use a DCF for valuing a stock's price, which method do you use? <laughs> he says, I would appreciate a response, mate. Thanks. And that's from Jordan. That's a that's a reasonable question. <laughs> He's thinking, hang on, if, if these guys don't use a, a, a method for valuation, why am I listening to these knuckleheads? And I reckon that's we didn't exactly phrase it that way, but I can I can I think I can paraphrase it, Jordan, with uh, with with kindness from you in that in that context. So Doc, DCF, discounted cash flow. Now, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that every company is actually Act, accurately could be described using a discounted cash flow. If you, you know, the, 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 the boffins will say a company is worth the value of its future cash flows. If you're buying any asset, all it's ever worth is the money you can get back from it over the, over the life of the time you own the, the asset. And that's a combination of any dividends, any profits, and then whatever future sale price you sell the company for, a, a terminal value of one sort or another. If you can get back more than you pay for it, then it's worth buying. If you get back less than you pay for it, then you'd be silly to pay for it. If you can buy some 100 bucks and get $90 back, you're probably going to do it, although plenty of people buy cars that way, so that's a whole different conversation. But generally speaking, you're buying an asset because you're going to get at least what you paid for it back, preferably more and preferably a lot more. That's what a discounted cash flow does. It says, what are the future cash flows from this business? This is, this is all the money I expect to get. I'm going to put my $100 down. I'm going to get $110 back in cash from this business. Therefore, it's worth buying. So... Jordan's right, and I think I think at a, at a very academic level, that's the only way you can accurately value a company. Yet, I don't think you've ever used. Have you ever used discounted cash flow? Well, so I was going to clarify the answer. Oh, a little okay. Bit. So, uh, I don't know what I don't remember what we said. Maybe we mischaracterized. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't say I, that by the way. I said I hardly ever use them. But yeah, I'll let you answer. Yeah. So, I'll clarify a little bit for from a like the Motley Fool research team here in Australia's <laughs> point of view. Some of us actually do use DCFs, sure. right? And um, you know, crazy enough. Uh, so my colleague or our colleague Ryan Newman, he built a DCF for Afterpay of all things. Okay, that's a hard one to build a DCF for, but he did build a DCF, and it was a very compelling DCF uh, when he built it. So it's not that we don't build DCFs; mm-hmm. um, we do, and then. Um, Sometimes we we could do a reverse DCF, for example, or we could look at the share price and basically, or the current valuation that the market is assigning, and then come up with an estimate of what we think the the market is estimating as the, the sum total of the future yep, yep, yep. Um, cash flows. Right. So there's right. so we use DCFs in multiple ways. I guess what I said is I seldom actually build one myself. <laughs> and and, uh, and maybe I said that. And the reason I, I like the most of the businesses I look at, they typically have, um, you know, profits or cash being generated out in the future. Um, they're generating lots of revenue. Mm. The revenue is growing, but they're mm. plowing almost everything back into the <laughs> business. So it, it becomes a little like, there are other, I can do a lot of other shorthands and mm-hmm. I can arrive at the same answer. And one of the things I like not doing in investing is I try not to be too accurate. And it sounds like, okay, this guy is not accurate and this is a bad thing, right? But, you know, accuracy, trying to be too accurate, too perfect yeah. is, it can be a big problem because it's going to scare you out of stuff, yep. right? And I just, I just go with the assumption that I'm going to be wrong a lot of times, but I just want to make sure that I am. It's, it's like, you know, I, I want to bat in a way that I can have enough of those big hits. <laughs> and if I can get those big hits, yeah. it's okay to fail um, every now and then. It, it's, it's just fine. I can fail 50% of the time. I can still be okay. And I'll, I'll still be okay. So that's right. that's that's the framework. And depending on the framework, if you're looking at highly disruptive businesses, mm. another way to think about it is that company, uh, uh, the widget company makes multiple different. Today, it makes <laughs> one widget. Yep. It may it by looking at the company you can think that it's going to make widget B, widget C, widget D, widget E, widget F in the future. You may yep. now 
if you have enough confidence in what those widgets are and how much those widgets may make, you can get an idea of, well, okay, this, this market is huge, humongous, and all it really needs to do is maybe, you know, grab 10% of that market. And at scale, many businesses basically have fixed costs or roughly fixed costs. So their costs do not, you know, if a company grows 10x, their costs do not have to grow 10x, depending on the type of business for sure. Um, like, you know, so if it's a, if it's a mm. bank, yes, if you want to grow the bank 10x, your probably costs are going to grow. You know, you have to find a, uh, that kind of leverage around as well, right? right so your right. leverage is also going to grow uh, proportionately. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many businesses, for example, software businesses, once mm-hmm. you've written the code, if you can, if you've written a piece of code, you can sell it to one person or you can mm. sell the same code to Eight billion, nine billion people, and effectively, all all that additional thing that you have to do is find a way to distribute it, and the mm. distribution could be the internet, right? Which could basically mean it's free distribution. So, at a high level, uh, scale is what I look for, and if I'm looking mm. at scale, then I, I'm really just focused on mm. how big it can get, and I can get a good sense of what the operating margins can be at that point, and that's probably more useful than trying to figure out what exactly the DCF. Uh, you know, valuation is going to look like. So it's a, different ways of doing the same sort of thing. Again, as I said, you, could, you can build a TCF model if you want mm-hmm. or even something mm-hmm. like Afterpay. True. So I, I think that's absolutely right. I have said, and I will say again, I very, very, very rarely use a DCF. Um, and it's for a couple of reasons, I think. Um, the I, I, Regular listeners will know I'm a massive, massive, massive fan of investment psychology and understanding our own limitations as investors and frankly the market's limitations because there's opportunities there. One of the best advantages for someone who can tame their own psychology is just to be a long-term investor because when the rest of the market is telling you to buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell um, and you can just ignore that and, and find good business and hold on to them, you're 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 almost you're, it's almost unfair the advantage you get from doing that just by simply saying I'm not going to listen to you knuckleheads I'm going to do my own thing I'm going to stick with the company I'm going to focus on the business itself and expect some sort of long term return and not try and be buffered around by backwards and forwards buy sell buy sell from a DCF perspective the psychology there generally speaking is humans are very 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 bad at letting the numbers actually drive the outcome right. There are, you mentioned Afterpay, Doc, Amazon's another one. Companies that are hyper growth. Now, Ryan, I haven't seen his DCF model. I'm sure it's great for Afterpay. But people, humans, investors, all of us, are very bad at being able to plug in large numbers for extended periods of time. I said this before. And look at the result and say, okay, fair enough. Now, if you'd have literally been able to forecast Amazon's, if you'd have, if you'd have put 20% compound growth in Amazon's numbers from 1997, you would have paid every price ever. You would have not stopped buying Amazon from 1997 onwards. Because the, the the numbers that spat out from that are huge. Now, I don't know what the numbers would have been if you'd done that. Maybe I'll call it two thousand dollars to pick a number. It's less than today's price, so let's not overdo it. Let's say nineteen. Let's say two thousand. You put the numbers in, and when the shares were trading for I don't know hundred bucks a share, you did a model that said these shares are worth two thousand dollars in twenty twenty. You should have mortgaged your house, sold your car, you know, sent your kids down the salt mine, done everything possible to get as much possible cash as you could find to get a twenty bagger in twenty years, and you would have retired stupidly rich. But no serious analyst, no serious even amateur investor could honestly, even if they'd said, look, I think it'll grow for a lot for a long time, it's just impossible. It, it, literally almost impossible for anyone to put those numbers in a spreadsheet and say in, two, in the year 2000, Amazon is worth $2,000 a share when the shares are currently 100 bucks. People just can't do it. So what you do is say, well, maybe it's not 20% a year. Maybe look, maybe it's 15% a year for the first few years. And then I guess maybe it's 10% after that. And maybe maybe things get normal. But yeah, by, by, look, by 2014, Amazon's probably growing about the rate of the economy. So let's call that 3%. And the shares are worth $125. And you would have convinced yourself that was absolutely true, right? And and that's that's not a that's not a slight at anybody. That's just like that is just straight out psychology 101. So how do you avoid it? Well, frankly, by kind of avoiding the, the the processes that lead you to make those mistakes. Now, I think DCFs are super useful for low growth companies. If you're buying a utility, a tel- telecom, a Telstra, for example, a telco or a pipeline or a something or even a toll road in, in non-COVID times, you know, whether, whether the traffic flow growth is going to be somewhere between two and two and a half percent for a year, you want to absolutely work out what that's worth, right? Because there is just not that range of outcomes. But if you've got any company with any sort of growth, I dare say that using a DCF, putting the numbers in the boxes are painful. Now, I will say one last quick thing, which is that I 
I, I have the luxury of not using it probably because I have used them for years. So for, for new investors, there is some value in doing it because I've kind of internalized, you know, I, I'm no Warren Buffett, right? But just to give an, an example, I'm not trying not trying to make myself sound good by comparison, but, you know, Charlie Munger said of Warren Buffett, he's never seen him use, do a DCF, right? On the flip side, Buffett is such a, um, genius, quite literally, that he could probably do it in his head anyway. So the fact he hasn't actually physically done an ECF, you know, he would know roughly. Okay, if I get growth of this, then I can pay that. Uh, yeah, probably, probably off the top of his head. Um, but the same thing kind of holds. Once you've done it a bit, you have a you have a sense of the flavor of how much you should pay for a company growing at a certain rate. Um, but generally speaking, why I don't use a DCF is it stops me rationalizing downwards a company's growth. And stops me making the the mistakes. Generally speaking, um, I still make the mistake, by the way, in a whole lot of areas, including Afterpay. We talked about before. I have never bought that, and it's hundred dollars a share now. Um, but you know, it, it stops me being tempted to downplay a company's growth just because it seems like the responsible thing to do. Even if I'm not talking to anyone else, I'm going to talk to myself. Um, it's just too hard to put those numbers in and and seem like it's a reasonable thing to do. Any more thoughts on that, Doc? No, I think that's a brilliant summary. I like it. Mate, you're very kind. And, you know, I must say, do I, I, you, you maybe you owe me money. Do you owe me money? Um, why, are you, why are you being nice to me? Oh, well, we can see. We will, we'll, we'll, we'll talk that. That's offline. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Mate, should we, do a, uh, should we do a special mailbag episode this weekend? Well, it's like, uh, no, we have to do it, right? <laughs> Mate, can I tell you the number well, of questions we've got? We have to do it. I, I think the question should be, we are not going to do one. <laughs> We're not doing it. What do you think? Oh, what Come do you think then? Oh, we should do it. <laughs> Just different questions, same answer? Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. All right, now, now we've got through that. If you do want your question answered, please do send us that question because we can't answer it unless you send it to us because then we don't know it's a question. And Anyway, um, so hit us up on the socials. You can get us on Twitter. That's the one place you can find both Doc, myself, and the Motley Fool's corporate account. So Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. That's on Twitter. Uh, feel free to tag us in your tweets. Feel free to send us a direct message. Uh, knock yourself out with that sort of stuff. It's kind of fun. If you are on Instagram, uh, all the cool kids are these days. If you've got photos of meals, I wonder if Instagram's business is down because people aren't eating out as much. Do you reckon there's less posts because people can't Instagram their. Oh, no, no, no. No? Dude, you can Instagram from your balcony. You you got, don't, you have a, don't you have like a restaurant? Isn't that what Instagram is all about? The um, meals and stuff. No, I'm, no. Instagram is about like you know, um, people making contorting, you know, contorting their shape <laughs> and making weird all the beautiful faces. people you reckon. Well, like you know, it's about you know, you, you, if you're beautiful, you can be on Instagram. If you're not beautiful, you can be on Instagram. If you're something, you can be on Instagram. If you're nothing, you can be on Instagram. It's like Instagram is for everyone. I'm in uh, the I'm in the last bracket of those ones. Uh, so on Instagram. At the Motley Fool AU is the company account, or at TMF Scott P is me. If you want to get in touch with us, feel free to do it that way. And again, feel free to tag us or send us a direct message on Facebook. I'm assuming old school these days, old fashioned. Everyone's parents are on Facebook, and then maybe these days I'm in the age group where I'm everyone's a parent. I'm not sure, but hit us up on Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise. And I'm Scott Phillips Money. And you can email us, info at fool.com.au. If you have another question, you don't want to use one of the socials, feel free to email us, info at fool.com.au. And our wonderful member services, Fools, will pass that along. Now, before we go, Doc, I am of the understanding that you have an investment service called Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Is that right? That seems to have right. And am I right in assuming that it is stupidly cheap? It's, it's well, it's very cheap. Could I buy a membership for less than a cup of coffee a week? Well, well you know, here's the thing. Um, uh, somebody actually sent me a note saying it's not right to call it cheap because cheap makes the service sound not nice. Oh, so cheap and nasty cheap. Yeah, like cheap is, is okay. a nasty cheap. Is it inexpensive? Inexpensive is the correct word. I was okay. told that, you know, that we should use the word inexpensive. Right. It's not cheap, it's inexpensive. It's, it's super inexpensive. The price is the same though, right? The price is still the same. Okay. <laughs> is it super inexpensive? It's, it's like super, super inexpensive. Is it less Expensive? Is it more expensive than a cup of coffee a week? Oh, it's it's it, yeah. It's like you know, the co- a cup of coffee is expensive, <laughs> and and your service is less Inexpe- expensive. Than it's inexpensive. Inexpensive. <laughs> Should people join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities? Well, I think so. I mean, if they want to, you know, look at these interesting companies, the non banks and the non, uh, you know, <laughs> the non miners and the non banks. If you want to look at those sort of things, then you can have a look at you know. If you want the banks, uh, I can't help you. <laughs> and is it true? That people can go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast to get a special podcast deal to join you at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. I think that's true too. 
There you go. You've heard it from the horse's mouth. I've led the horse to water. He's had a big drink and he recommends, as do I, that you join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and get some of the goodness that Doc and Kevin roll out. Again, market beating, great businesses. You know, a bit of extra risk, but you get a bit of extra return with that, at least thus far. And we expect that to continue. Past performance is, of course, as ever, no guarantee. But as I've also heard said elsewhere, what else is a better indicator? So I'll leave that for you to ponder. That wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app or Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, and why wouldn't you, please give us a five-star rating on the aforementioned iTunes. It's Apple Day. Help Doc out. Give us, give us some ratings. See, if you want, if you want to give Doc a bit of, a, bit of support, just throw, throw a rating up there. Do it for Doc. Don't do it for me. Do it for Doc. And of course, do please tell your friends, share some love with them, send them some links, suggest they join the podcast or one of our social pages and get some good stuff from us. If they like it, it could be a bit of fun. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. I've, what did I rant about this week? I, the Bunning Sausage Sizzle, I emailed about this week. Talked about the budget last week. It is just a random plethora of wonderful, exciting and different bits of my brain that just splurge onto the page if you want some of that and some marketing from us go to fool.com.au forward slash triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley fool money we'll be back surprise on sunday for a special motley fool mailbag fool on fool on the motley fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned general advice only please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m the motley fool operates under financial services license 400691